everyone! Before we start, I wanted to let you know, if you would like to watch our whole service, head to our website, that's dc2.me, and from the media drop-down, click Sermons. You can watch our whole service there. And now, here's this week's sermon. All right, hey, those of you who are here in the barn, you can go ahead and take a seat. Those of you watching online, we want to welcome you to Discovery Church. I know uh, for many of you, this is your home church, whether you're here in the room or online, but also for quite a few of you, we've heard from quite a few of you lately, that you are either looking for a church or uh, what we're also hearing from a lot of people is you're trying to figure out both what you believe and what we believe. And can it really be true? Can it really be true that the center of the universe is love? That the very heartbeat that keeps the universe spinning is a heartbeat of love? And so we've launched this series where we're talking about some fundamental words um, in the church and what they mean. And today's word, coolest word yet, absolution. This is a word I actually don't think in all my, all my years... I don't think I have ever used this word in this church, absolution. It's, it's more traditionally a Catholic word. We want to talk about what it is, why it's the most amazing thing, how to get it, or if you have it, how to let it sink a little deeper. Um, obviously, I'm a bit of an anomaly around here. I, I don't, I, my personal opinion is discovery needs more migrants, but I'm an immigrant. I was born in another country, of course, in Australia, and it might surprise you to discover that that even though Australia is completely pagan, we are all largely unchurched, 96% of us. We're not raised in the church. About 4% of us actually uh, see Jesus as a savior, would go to church. Uh, even though that's true, we all say that we're Christians. And so maybe that's why it's not surprising that when I was in public school, in elementary school, I went to science class and I went to maths in Australia, it's plural because there's many of them. Science and maths, and I went to social studies, and I went to scripture. Twice a week, Mrs. Gudgeon, Nathan Gudgeon's mum, my friend's mum, would come in with her accordion and her flannel board, and she would teach scripture. Now, because we were all Christian, we all went. But if you weren't a Christian and you could procure a note from your parent, you didn't have to go. And that's probably why my friend Hisham, who was from Bangladesh, is actually my best friend, Hisham Scarf, he was Hindu. And so he got a note from his parents that he was not to go to scripture class. Again, I know this sounds crazy for those of you who are Americans. Like the idea, What about the separation of church and state and all of that? Nope, not in Australia. You go to public school, just like Meridian Elementary, like this school right here, and you take your math and your science and your social studies and you take your scripture. So Hisham would sit in the library. I remember I'd always ask him, I'm like, what do you do? And he'd either read like Hardy Boys novels or once in a while he would get out his Dungeons and Dragons, which to me felt very opposite of, you know, the whole. Anyway, we, we would sit and Mrs. Gudgeon would come in. She did this for years, all through elementary school, this sweet, kind lady. And um, for some of you who were raised in Sunday school, that song, Silver and Gold Have I None, But What I Have I Give Thee in the Name of Jesus Christ, Rise Up and Walk. Hands up if you've ever sung that. Yeah, I sang that in public school. Crazy. So the last year of elementary school, uh, we get to, you know, first week of class. It's my last year before heading on. And uh, suddenly, rather than just going into the room where Mrs. Gudgeon taught, we had to all stand in line and we had to declare our religion. And I'm like, what's going on? This is weird. Where's Mrs. Gudgeon? And they said, well, Mrs. Gudgeon's retired. We now have several options. You have to choose which one you are. What kind of Christian are you? 
like I'm the good kind. It's, that's an easy, I'm, I'm a good Christian. And I didn't know the answer to that because my family had never been to church. I think in all my years, we had been to church together three, maybe four times. Like if a family friend got christened, we'd all dress up. We'd go to a church. It was the weirdest experience. They would sing songs I'd never heard of before. A guy would get up in a black top with a little white spot here. I was always thinking that'd be a great place for an endorsement, a little Nike swish. Could be, you could sell like a billboard. You know, so it was just the whole, the whole experience was foreign. Uh, so that's when we went to church. So we were not a church family. All of my friends in school weren't church family. But the kid in front of me, Tim Creed, I said, Tim, what kind of Christian are you? And Tim said, well, I'm Catholic. And you should say you're Catholic because we get a pool party at the end of the year. I'm like, I'm Catholic, baby. Like, that was the easiest conversion ever. Because um, Mrs. Gudgeon never offered a pool. We didn't even get snacks. We just had accordion and flannel graph. So we get up to the front of the line, and there's one of the administrators. Okay, what's your religion? And I'm very bold. I was very, you know, the Pope would have been proud of me. I'm Catholic. I just, boom, there it is. Next thing you know, I'm in a dark room, and there's candles, and there's beads, and there's this little four-foot nun and I, I'm not ignorant. I know what a nun is. I'd watched the Blues Brothers. I was up on my nuns. And it was just, it was like nothing I'd ever done at school. So I go home to my mum. And, you know, how was your day? Would you? And I said, oh, yeah, my scripture class was weird, uh, you know, this year. Mrs. Gudgeon isn't teaching it anymore. And my mum was friends with Mrs. Gudgeon. She's, oh, yeah, she got a job. She's, so what happened? I said, well, we, we had to stand in line and we had to declare what kind of Christian we were. And I had, I don't know, never even thought about it. But Tim said, be Catholic because we get a pool party. So I'm Catholic. And my mother says, you have to go in and change it. You're not Catholic. You're Anglican. How, how do you know we're Anglican? Like, where's the secret family knowledge? We've never had this conversation as a family. We didn't even know in a family Bible. We've never been to church together except to celebrate a family friend. How do you know we're Anglican? But of course... My mother and me and my dad and, as it turns out, my whole extended family and most uh, Australians think about Christianity the way some of you think about it, which is simply through the lens of whether you're a good person or not. And so in the Cuss family, we are all Christians, and that's simply a synonym for we are all good citizens. That's what that means. We're good people. We look out for others. We're selfless. We serve but we also have in integrity and values. That's all true. In fact, if, if my parents were in the room today, I would say the same thing about them. These are people with incredible integrity, values, extremely generous. They care for the poor. My parents tithe, and they're not even followers of Jesus. They give money to charities to help. Like, good people, therefore we're Christian. But what I discovered later, oh, by the way, just to finish the story, not in the message, but this is how it is. I had to go back and I had to say, hey, I'm Anglican, and that wound me up in the Church of Christ room. We did not have an Anglican available, so I ended up in the, the broad category of Protestant. Didn't even know what that was, but there I was. And John Tim showed up, the, the new young preacher in town. He had just moved from Sydney on the East Coast, showed up. He had volunteered to teach Scripture in the school because he knew what an incredible way to tell kids about the love of God. And he rolls up. We're 11 and 12. We're prepubescent, bored out of our brains boys, right? He takes one look at us, ditches the flannel graph, no accordion, and he just stands there and mesmerizes us every week. And he just told us stories about Elijah and Elisha, and I couldn't get enough. I was like, this is the most amazing stuff I've ever heard in my life. 
like you tease the prophet and he calls down bears and eats you, that's good. So I didn't know that was in the Bible. Like if someone had told me that was in the Bible, I would have read more Bible. And just to, just to finish that story, it was John Timms' church where I was baptized into Christ. It was his church where my sister first started going, yeah, I'm all emotional. It's not in the notes. It's just amazing to think about, like this, this guy, this preacher coming into a public school and, and proclaiming the adventure. That's what I remember about his stories. Like how, it, how exciting it sounded to follow God. And then they ran a youth group and we go to this youth group and we get baptized and fast forward a little bit, here we are today. However, what was shocking to me when I became an actual Christian, what I'd like to call a proper Christian, is there are things in actual Christianity that were 100% absent from my life when I was a good person Christian. I'd like to name some of them for you. The resurrection of Jesus. Never talked about it. Didn't think about its implications. It had no impact on my life whatsoever. The reason I'm reading these is if you feel the same way, I'm going to ask you to listen carefully to what we're inviting you to do today. The resurrection of Jesus had no implication on my life. I knew that Jesus died on the cross. I could have told you that as a good citizen Christian, but it meant nothing to me that he died for my sins. It just, I didn't need it. Uh, absolution, that's what we're talking about. Anything beyond my own individual view of myself, which I might add, was utterly skewed towards self-justification. I was my own authority. I decided what was right and wrong. And because I was a good person, I always gave myself credit for being a Christian. I had no outside standard outside of myself and my family. It wasn't like I was asking God what God thinks about it. In the last few weeks, we've been looking at church words, confession. Last week, Kevin Cologne uh, just led us through a ripper of a sermon on repentance. Listen, Kevin has been a dear friend of Discoveries. Uh, he's one of my best friends in my life. He's been a dear friend of Discoveries for years. If you miss Kevin's message on repentance, I'm, I'm just going to pause and encourage you to grab it because it was just pure gold where Kevin showed us the freedom that's available when we repent. Today's word is absolution. Absolution. So here's what it is. Maybe you've never heard of it. Maybe you have. Absolution is simply the declaration that your sins are forgiven and that your record is wiped clean. That's all it is. Absolution is the declaration that your sins are forgiven and your record is wiped clean. Before I became an actual follower of Christ, I managed absolution on my own. If I were offended somebody, if I did something that was wrong, if I hurt somebody, I would forgive myself. I would never seek absolution from that person or from God. For absolution to work, someone has to offer it to you. You cannot absolve yourself. It just doesn't work. If you harm someone, you can forgive yourself, yes. But really what happens is you, you require forgiveness from another person. Absolution, as it turns out, is a gift that is freely offered from the one who was wronged to the one who did wrong. So the reason I get excited about absolution is all the things that come along with it. Things like humility, submission, deference, also owning and taking responsibility. One of the things I noticed in my life before I was a follower of Jesus, back when I was what I would simply call a good Christian, I did not take responsibility when I did wrong. I would, I would cover it over. I would act like it was no big deal. I would minimize it or I would blame other people or I would hide 
after becoming a follower of Christ, because God has absolved me, it has actually freed me up to no longer need to minimize it, hide, or blame others. I can stand here under the loving gaze of God and say, yep, that's exactly what I did. I can name it. You know, one of the things you can notice in our society today, sometimes it's easier to see this in other people before you see it in yourself. You can simply look at the press releases of celebrities who are caught in the act and just see all of the words they're using to minimize and obfuscate. There's an incredible Christian named Wade Mullen. He got his PhD in impression management tactics. How's that for a PhD? Here's what Wade Mullen does. When an organization's leader is caught red-handed and they then release a press statement, he dissects their press statement with all the impression management tactics that they have employed to obfuscate, minimize, blame the victim, gaslight. And what he does is on Twitter, Wade's a great guy to follow on Twitter, he will post the press release and then he will dissect it using his doctoral level knowledge about how we hide and blame. When you have been absolved from your sins, you don't have to do that anymore. I read some of these press releases, particularly as I follow some of the more famous Christians that are getting caught. And I just think to myself, if you would just name it, you can be free. But instead, you're hiding and blaming and gaslighting. So I like what comes with absolution. That's why I'm excited about it. Humility, submissions, deference, taking responsibility. But underneath all of that, absolution comes down to authority. So I know many of you are followers of Christ and many of you are not followers of Christ. It's a simple question. Who's the authority in your life? Who is the number one authority in your life? And I know what the church answer is. The church answer is Jesus Christ. It reminds me of, you know, that Sunday school teacher, right? Like it's kind of a corny joke, but hey, Sunday school teacher's asking kids and and she says, hey, what's uh, brown and cute and eats chestnuts and has a bushy tail. And one of the kids is like, I know the answer is Jesus, but it sure sounds like a squirrel. Yeah, it's kind of like that, right? Like, who's the authority in your life? And you so quickly say, Jesus, move along. But it's a real genuine question because we live in a self-sufficient society. We live in a society that, that shapes us and disciples us. We live in a culture that disciples us to where we are the authority in our own life. And even those of us who are followers of Christ, I believe this is actually the number one struggle of being a follower of Christ in Western culture, is that Western culture is trying to forge us into a self-centered disciple of self. Therefore, we're our own authority. And what's interesting is as you look at our culture, just how anxiously we are trying to make sure everybody's okay no matter what you do, we're all okay. But maybe the best news you've heard today is none of us are okay on our own. Actually, we are all fallen. The scripture uses very stark language to say we are lost. We are lost without the absolution of Jesus Christ. I know in my life as somebody who was raised outside the church, I was a really good suburban kid. I was a pretty boring kid to raise because I never really got into trouble. But I knew even at that young age, I was lost. And I I will never forget the feeling of being found. It's probably the most profound experience I had when I became a follower of Jesus Christ as a teenager is the simple idea that I have been found by the center of the universe whose name is Jesus Christ. 
And not only did Jesus find me, but he absolved me of my sin. He gave me the gift of eternal life. Like it's a deal. You can, it's so good to be true. Frederick Buechner calls it, he, he says it's like a fairy tale. It's so good. It's almost too good to be true. You can't believe it's actually true, but it's true. I think we make a terrible mistake in our society when we look at how the Bible describes people as lost or lost people. And we get all cagey about it. We say, oh, that's pejorative. That's like a, a, an insult. No, I think it's just descriptive. I think the scripture is simply describing what a human being is like when they're left to their own devices and they're not found. Now, Jesus knew this when he came to earth. It turns out that absolution was his highest priority. And one of the ways you know that is people were always pressing on Jesus. They always had kind of an agenda, things they wanted from him. And he would often absolve them of their sins and ignore what they wanted or do what they wanted later. I'll show you one example here in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus stepped into a boat and he crossed over and he came to his own town. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, Why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, go home. Then the man got up and he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. <laughs> There's a lot of things I love about this story. Uh, if you don't have something in your Bible to read this week, maybe uh, you're not on a Bible reading plan, or those of you who are not followers of Christ, you're just not in the habit of reading your Bible. Why don't you grab a couple of chapters of Matthew this week and just start in Matthew 8, because Jesus, starting in Matthew 8, is on an authority bender. That's what I would call it. It's not really what the Bible scholars call it, but it's good enough for us today. Jesus is on an authority bender. He is just throwing down authority again and again and again. So like in Matthew 8, he's on a boat. The storm's really terrible, and the disciples are afraid Jesus is taking a nap. And he gets up, and he stands on the front of the boat, and he speaks to the elements which is a clear reminder that Jesus is the same God who spoke to the elements in Genesis 1. When, when God spoke, and God spoke into the chaos, and he ordered chaos, that's what Jesus did in Matthew 8. He spoke, and he ordered chaos. The wind and the storm calmed down. Jesus has power over the elements. If you feel like your life is absolutely full of chaos, just a little aside, Jesus is the best news you've ever heard, because he can order your chaos. You can get yourself into trouble. He'll never say, I told you so. He'll just start ordering your chaos. It's one of the great miracles of the gospel of Jesus. Actually, frankly, it's reason enough to follow Jesus just to let him come in and order your chaos. Then Jesus gets to the other side, the Gadarene region. There's a man who is so inflicted by demons that he is harming others and he's harming himself. And Jesus, no one can do anything. Jesus just walks, same idea, just speaks to the man, casts the demons out. It turns out that Jesus has all authority over evil. 
Man, one of the great reasons to follow God, I mean, like eternal life, that's a good bonus, but one of the reasons to follow Jesus Christ is he has authority over evil. And there is, frankly, a lot of evil in our world today. And it can feel completely overwhelming. You know, because of globalization and instant news and the internet and 24-hour cable, it used to be that most evil was reported regionally, but now we get all of it in real time. And I don't know if it feels like this to you, but it feels like we are inundated with evil. But greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Jesus has authority over evil. My favorite part is he then gets back on the boat and he has an agenda. Jesus, if you were to keep reading Matthew 9, he's on a bender. He's on an authority bender. But he gets interrupted by these friends. They bring their friend who's paralyzed on a mat and they lay the paralyzed man before Jesus. Now, Jesus is already known as the healer. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out, I wonder what these men want Jesus to do for their friend their paralyzed friend. And Jesus looks at the guy and he basically says, okay, your sins are forgiven. Now, back to where I was going. And, and the, the religious leaders are the ones that flag him for a, a healing foul, right? Like they're like the NFL refs, they blow the whistle. Hey, I think that's a foul. Uh, you, you, you don't. And basically the religious leaders are saying, you do not have the power to forgive sins. That is one step too far. That's a, that's a strike. That's a note in the file. They're basically saying. And I, I love this. You know, we don't talk about this much in church because it feels crass, but it's true. Sometimes Jesus healed someone just to spite someone else. I know, I, I get it. Like, and especially if you long for healing for somebody, uh, sometimes it's just comforting to know that the reason God doesn't heal as many people today is because there were different purposes for the healings in the Bible. We often think that Jesus healed a person in the Bible for only that person. And of course, Jesus absolutely cared for that person, but he was offering do, offer, often doing it to make another point. And if Jesus were Italian, this healing would look something like this. Right in the face of the religious leaders. That was that healing. He doesn't really care if the guy walks because in Maslow's hierarchy of needs, or should I say, in Jesus' hierarchy of needs, there is a need that goes deeper than our physical well-being, and that is our spiritual connection to God. And only Jesus Christ can give us that. So then he goes on and heals the guy. Now, in the original language, the Bible, the New Testament was written predominantly in Greek. And once in a while, the Greek word packs all this power that our English word doesn't have. In fact, after the nine o'clock service, uh, someone came up and we were chatting about the message. And she said, yeah, absolution. I've never really heard that in a Protestant church. I guess our word is forgiveness. And I said, yeah, our word's forgiveness. I just think that word needs a little more horsepower to it because I think we're so familiar with it, it, it's lost its power on us. So here is what some of the words are in the original language. To hurl which by the way in Australia means to vomit. Just get, let that get out of you. To send away, to release from obligation, to leave behind. Those of you who are not followers of Christ, this is what is offered to you, is you come to Jesus and he absolves you. He, he absolves. It kind of reminds you of the word dissolve. He, he just takes it away. And those of you who are not followers of Christ, uh, excuse me, those of you who are followers of Christ, I think what's very real is sometimes God can forgive us, but we can't forgive ourselves. 
God has tossed it away. God has hurled our sin. He's cast it out in the psalm. David writes, David says, as far as the east is from the west, that is how far my sin is from your sight. And, and one of the simplest ways I know to remember that my sin has been cast from the sight of God is east and west. It's a simple stretching of my arms. It's like, oh, when, that's what Jesus was doing. When he died on the cross, he was simply casting our sin from his sight to where we bring up our sin to God and God's like, you're going to have to commit it again because I don't remember it. Like, there are certain things that God has a foggy memory on, but our memory is crystal clear. So, in the original language, are there one of these metaphors that is helpful for you? God hurls your sins out of his sight. He sends them away. He actually commands them to leave. I love this one. Releases you from obligation. Or, this is another fun one, you just leave him right where you left him. And now you're somewhere else. You're in a new place now. I'm... uh, Sorry to say, I'm rapidly becoming an old man. I turned 50 this year. And it's really weird because I don't feel remotely that old. But I am. And one of the ways I know is I used to have an injury when I would play sport. And now I have an injury in my sleep. Like I wake up and I'm like, oh, man, I must have pulled something in my sleep. The sun of getting old. So I'm old enough to remember when I used to have to write a paper without the benefit of a computer or a digital word processor. Um, and, and so there were two options. You could handwrite the paper. I know you youngins, you don't know how good you, you have it now. You young people. I'm, that's how old I am, Ramey. I'm actually calling young people young people. That's, now we're getting in trouble. Like, you know those preachers that, oh, you youngins? That's me now. That's me now. Until we get another lead pastor. That's the way it's going to be. Uh, and so I used to have to handwrite out my paper. Or sometimes you get a newfangled electric typewriter with... Uh, a correction tape built in, but what would happen? Let's say you're writing an eight-page paper, and let's say you've written page eight, you get into the end, and you make a mistake on the bottom of page eight. Now, of course, we're not idiots. You don't have to rewrite the first seven pages. You only have to rewrite the eighth page, but it's at the bottom of the page. You have to rewrite the whole page. Hands up if you remember having to do this, us, us older folk, the older kin, yeah, that's us. There was this magical device called liquid paper, or whiteout, and I, I think one of them's a brand and one's a description. I don't know. Well, they're in, I didn't research this deep enough for you guys. Sorry. Liquid paper or whiteout, and and for those the young the youngsters in the room, basically, it's like a white paint that dries instantly. So it's got a little nail brush, like you're doing your nails, but you're not doing your nails. You're doing your paper. So uh, what you do is you take the word that you wrote wrong and you paint over it in white, and then you blow on it. Remember that when you're in a hurry, you blow on it. And then you tap it with your fingernail to make sure it's dry. And then you can write the correct word over it, right? That's, that's liquid paper or whiteout. It was, it was a lifesaver. Uh, I remember it very fondly. Um, but today, uh, you know, you youngsters, it's so much easier because uh, all you have to do is delete. You just, you just highlight and hit delete and it's gone. Now, it's true. You can do control Z or command Z and it'll come back again. But actually, on your computers, I discovered the hard way, there's a way to delete that's irretrievable, unrecoverable. It was 2007, I think it was. Uh, my Mac was having troubles. This is before 
uh, automatic backups were easy for people like me who aren't very tech savvy. And I was not automatically backing up my computer. And everything was on my computer, and it had problems. So I'm, I'm deep into Google trying to understand how to recover things from my hard drive. And I'm at the point of copying and pasting code that I found on the internet into the terminal of my computer. Those of you who are computer programmers, you're like, this does not sound great. It wasn't great. I accidentally erased most of my hard drive. I lost a couple of years of sermons. I lost, it was really bad. So I'm immediately trying to turn my computer off. And I rushed to the Apple store. And they look at it and they're like, dude, it's gone. It is gone. As far as the east, they didn't say this, but as far as the east is from the west, it ain't coming back. The only way to make it come back is you have to type it from memory. And it just occurred to me that God treats our sin like a computer, and I think we as humans treat it like liquid paper. Because the fact is we just cover it over, but it's still there. In fact, you can let the liquid paper dry, you can write on a new word, and if you miswrote that one, you've got two options. You can paint to a second coat, or you can scratch it off. And there's the word. And what that makes me think of is Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The very first time they sinned and they felt exposed, they covered themselves. It's like they liquid papered themselves. And God's like, what are you doing? Who why are you covering yourself? That's my job. That's what God says. my job. I'm the one that covers your sin. And that's the invitation for the gospel. I'd like to invite Mariah and the crew out to come. They're, they're going to prepare us uh, to, to receive communion. They're going to prepare us by leading in worship. And it's a simple invitation for those of you who are followers of Christ. Is there a sin that you are hanging on to that God is inviting you to forget as much as God forgets. That's maybe the work you can be doing as we sing. For those of you who are not followers of Christ, at the end of the service when we dismiss everybody, I'll be right down here. And if you want to become a follower of Christ, if you would like to be absolved for your sins, if you'd like to no longer be the authority of your own life, if you want to actually submit and humble yourself to the God who loves you so deeply, where you no longer have to carry your own sins anymore. You no longer have to pay anymore. You no longer have to manage your shame anymore. Jesus died to free you from all of that. You can come on down front. And I just want to close with this beautiful passage that Paul, it's almost like a vision that Paul's inviting us to live into in, in Corinthians. So if you're able and you're in the room, you're going to go ahead and stand as we read the word. Those of you at home, Second uh, Corinthians will be on the screen. Here's what Paul says. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. And all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know, every single one of us, we're going to stand before God face to face one day. 
And those of us who have been absolved, we can simply stand in the glory of God. It's going to be a great day. And those of us who are counting on ourselves for absolution are going to have to manage on our own. It is not going to go well. What we're going to be singing about now is simply the simple like celebration and anticipation of that day where we see God face to face. Let's, let's sing together now.